What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to James Baldwin's America. I am your host, Jesse James, and we have a great show for you today with a very special guest, Craig Werner, Professor Emeritus from UW-Madison in the Afro-American Studies program. Going to have a very short introduction today because I want to spend as much time with Craig as possible in what was a truly great interview. So, just want to tell you guys, you can follow, give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com, James Baldwin's America, or on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's. You can email the show with thoughts or questions at baldwins.america at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from, and give the show a five-star rating if you please. Your songs of the week this week, uh, they will be talked about in the interview with Craig. The first one is Kendrick Lamar, the song All Right from his 2015 album To Pimp a Butterfly. The video for this song is just as good as the song itself. The lyrics tell you one story. The videos give you that visual to go along with the lyrics. It's simply a masterpiece. Your second song of the week is People Get Ready from Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions from the 1965 album People Get Ready. Curtis is somebody that Craig will talk about and spend some time with today, and he is probably one of the most undervalued, I'd say, artists of the 1960s and 70s, but we'll talk about him more later on today. Your quote of the week comes from Sonny's Blues. This music theme that we're kind of on right now is going to keep up this entire episode. We're going to talk a lot about black music today roots of it, impulses of black music, the importance of it. So just to give you guys a heads up of what's coming. But the quote comes, as I said, from Sonny's Blues. All I know about music is that not many people ever really hear it. And even then, on the rare occasions when something opens within and the music enters, what we mainly hear or hear corroborated are personal, private, vanishing evocations. But the man who creates the music is hearing something else, is dealing with the roar rising from the void and imposing order on it as it hits the air. What is evoked in him, then, is of another order, more terrible because it has no words, no triumphant too, for that same reason. And his triumph, when he triumphs, is ours. And as I said earlier, so excited today to be joined by the Professor Emeritus in African American Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Craig Werner, and we'll talk with Craig right after this. All right, thank you so much for joining me today, Craig. First thing I ask all my interviewees, what is your favorite work done by James Baldwin? I'd have to go just above my head, but there are many, many possibilities on that. Just above my head for me brings so much of his career together that it kind of covers uh, a lot of things. Sonny's Blues would be a very, very close second. Now, 
So many people I've talked to and worked with, they say the same thing just above my head. But that book was really critically panned when it came out. So what do you think the difference was happening at that time when it was published that people kind of looked down on it, but now all these years later, it's almost universally loved and viewed as one of his best works? Or among Baldwin people, I think that's true. I think that at the time, it ran into a set of preconceptions about what made a good novel. Uh, They were essentially grounded in a Henry James sense of the American novel. And James, of course, was one of Baldwin's favorite writers uh, early on. But it put a high premium on rational explanation for every gesture you made. And Just Above My Head is not tight in that sense. It's much more spread out. It's a little bit like the difference between uh, maybe uh, a early Miles Davis uh, cut uh, from Kind of Blue and Bitches Brew uh, later on. That if what you want is tight and structured and at least semi-traditional, you probably go to Go Tell on the Mountain for a novel. Um, And I think there was some backlash on that. But I think that the bigger issue was really that when Just Above My Head was published, race was coming off the national agenda, that it was not being talked about. And Baldwin was very, very uncomfortable for people. And he was uncomfortable for people on pretty much all sides of uh, the issues. Uh, So I think it just was out of sync with its moment for exactly the same reason that it's in sync with ours. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Another question I ask everyone, how did you personally come to James Baldwin? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got one of the atypical stories on that. Um, I was watching a TV uh, clip of Baldwin uh, when I was about uh, 10 or maybe 11 years old in the early 1960s. And uh, Baldwin made sense to me. Uh, uh, And I came from a household where my father, uh, he was uh, a Republican economist, but he was also very progressive on civil rights uh, issues. He had taught um, African-American and Chicano soldiers in World War II when he was drafted. Um, And he was a reader. And so he had Baldwin books on his shelves. Um, And I had access to the shelves. And obviously, I was a fairly precocious reader picking it up. Uh, at that time, maybe I was 13, uh, certainly no older than that. But I went to a shelf and I picked up, oddly enough, Giovanni's Room. Uh, a less typical Baldwin book is hard to imagine. And I had no point of reference for what it was talking about. But it fascinated me. And there were a lot of moments in it that spoke to me. It would be years, probably at least a decade, before I had any real sense of what was going on in the book. And then from there, I picked up, I think uh, it was uh, Notes of a Native Son after that, and just started uh, reading Baldwin on my own off my dad's bookshelves. And it obviously stuck. Obviously. So, you know, he resonated with you when you were a teenager, but he's still resonating with people today and younger people today. You know better than almost anybody because you taught Baldwin classes for your entire career. So what is it about Baldwin that you think was still resonating with college kids in this decade? Well, I think that at every moment along the way, Baldwin spoke to people because he 
told the as close to the truth as it's possible to tell. Uh, he didn't uh, sugarcoat uh, anything. He didn't think, make things comfortable for anybody. And I think that's important, uh, that clearly uh, part of his resonance at this moment in time is he shines such a clear light on white supremacy and the dynamics of white supremacy. And people are hearing that at this moment. But at every moment along the way, Baldwin was speaking about the things that were not being spoken clearly about in people's lives. And I think that my take as a teacher, and Baldwin was at the center of that, was that give the young people the chance to talk as honestly and as deeply as possible about what's on their mind. There were times when the focus was more on sexuality and gender issues. I think right now it's more on race, but there were also definitely moments when the focus was on the complexities of identity. Uh, I worry a little bit that right now that's not central enough to the way that Baldwin talked about. There's almost a sense in which he's too easily popular uh, right now, which doesn't mean that's wrong to do that. But I just hope the register that when you go to Baldwin for the clarity of his indictments, and they are there, you also understand that there is always a complexity behind that and never an easy sense of identity. That's the resistance I have to the popular Baldwin. A little bit, uh, he can be made to play into a sort of identity politics that he certainly never played into. Right. I know, you know, from my personal experience, when I took your class and that was my first graduate class, and it was the first class where Baldwin was ever brought into the classroom. And for me, it's just the access to him, as you're saying, in so many different ways. So if you're, you know, struggling with identity or you're, you know, really wanting to try and figure out things in the political world now or race or music or spirituality, there were all these avenues into him that I just, for me, it was unique. And then once getting there, having absolutely nothing to do, nothing in common to do with him, but still finding things that I could relate to about him that was like, okay, if he experienced this and I did, we do have some sort of connection. I think for him, you know, when he talked about there is no we, we're all brothers, we're all sisters, we're all in this together. And to be able to have that access to and have that connection, for me, it's just something that has grown over time with Baldwin and the idea of identity and what he was doing. Ed Pavlik and I spent a lot of time talking about that the other day. Yeah. And one of those things that you and I have talked about, the more we talked, the more we had more questions instead of finding any answers. And that's something I've talked about on past podcasts is that can be one of the frustrating things about Baldwin is you're, you might want to find an answer to a certain question, but chances are your question is just going to lead to five more questions that you hadn't thought of, but you now realize you need to answer those questions as well. Well, that's called life, man. Uh, and I think Baldwin got that, uh, that, uh, he's such a process-oriented uh, writer and liver um, that, you know, uh, Ed Pavlik, who you mentioned, uh, put together this huge sheaf of Baldwin's 
uh, talks, his essays, the pieces that are not standard Baldwin uh, pieces. Um, and what you see in that is when Baldwin was speaking publicly, particularly during the 60s when he was at the highest demand, uh, he was constantly reframing. And so it was like hearing Thelonious Monk play Mysterioso or Coltrane and Eric Dolphy playing spiritual uh, four nights in a row at the Village Vanguard. Uh, every night it's different. Every day it's different. The world has changed around you and you're adjusting it and trying to find the phrases that are adequate to where you are now. And I think that people want answers. Um, if you want answers, Baldwin's not your guy. If you want a process that leads you to a answer that is the best we can share at the moment, uh, yeah, he's he's guy to turn to. I want to pivot only slightly away from Baldwin. I'm actually glad you've been uh, dropping so many musical references because I want to talk a little bit about the importance of black music to both Baldwin and yourself. He obviously talked about using it as a way to finish Gotella on the Mountain. It gave him a certain language that he had forgotten about, and he was able to tie it into the uh, Grimes' family and make that work complete. Um, you also have a long history with black music. You wrote one of the most important books on it, which I have right here. I'm holding up for the camera. A Change is Going to Come, Music and Race, and the Soul of America. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of black music in trying to figure out not only black history, but a complete version of American history? Sure. Um, that for me, uh, the African-American musical tradition is as profound and as complete a philosophy of life and aesthetics and politics and psychology and you name it, uh, as anything human beings have ever come up with. Uh, it uh, stands easily beside uh, uh, the Greek philosophers, beside Shakespeare, behind Dante, behind Islam, behind you, you name it. Uh, it's there. And it provides a vocabulary for thinking through the most fundamental human issues. Uh, the real shorthand on that is that it gives you a way of uh, clarifying realities and envisioning possibilities of looking at the world we're in, all the many vectors, as you said, that come into that and then lead out of that. Um, the blues say, uh, take a good hard look at what's here, hold up the mirror to reality and don't lie about it. Don't abstract it. Um, gospel says, let's do that together. We're part of a, a community. We need something larger than our individual material selves. We could stand that like every single instant in the world we're living in now. And jazz says that we are free to improvise, to test new selves, to develop new selves, to redefine who we are. So for me, I mean, literally, it's the way I think the world. Baldwin's interesting on that because my vocabulary for talking about this, writing about that, comes primarily from Ralph Ellison. And Ellison was much more of a theorist than Baldwin uh, was, particularly in his book, Shadow and Act. But in Baldwin, the music and everything that goes into it simply permeates everything. It's always there. It's in the air that the characters uh, breathe. And even in something like Giovanni's Room, uh, where there are no 
black characters in a sense, we usually think about it. Um, the sense of the blues is just uh, profound, but you take just above my head and the there's music everywhere. There are songs that are cited that he brings in, that characters, the music they listen to, the music playing in uh, the bar on Christmas Eve, all of that tells you what the texture of experience is for the characters at the time. And there are, and it's not just when Baldwin is making open allusions to it, but in Just Above My Head, I had a graduate student, Dennis Williams, um, uh, years back, who started out writing an MA thesis on gospel allusions in Just Above My Head, and he wound up just underlining the whole book, uh, that if you know enough of the music, you're hearing it everywhere. And um, so it's just, it's the processing of life. It's the textures of life. It's how you think and feel yourself into a better sense of who you are. And going along with the book that I just mentioned, you came to that book through lectures you were giving in your class about black music in America. And on the surface, and I know this because I was a TA for the class, not with you, but with another professor, that it's one of the most popular classes on campus. Everybody wants to get into this class about black music. I think initially, because they think it's going to be an easy class and something that they can just skate by. And it turns out to not be that at all. It's a class that makes them think, it makes them reevaluate not only themselves, but the society they're living in. It helps them more than anything listen because both you and the other professor spend so much time playing the music and really breaking down what is being said by the artist at the specific time that it was released because we can listen to music now from the 60s or 80s and we like the music, but it doesn't carry the same resonance and power that it did at the time. So with that, how do you think the students over time kind of change throughout that class and the benefits of the class where, like I said, on the surface, it might seem that it's a class that maybe shouldn't even be offered in college, but it's actually turns out to be one of the most valuable classes that these students take. And we can go back to any number of students that any of us have had that have kept in touch and been like, that class changed me. It helped me become a better person. Yeah. And I think what it, the long-term impact of the class is quite different from the immediate uh, impact. The immediate impact is mostly getting people to pay attention, to say, hey, it's not just party music. It's not just in the background. It's not just fun. It's not just what your aunts and uncles and parents listen to at the barbecue, uh, you know, things like that, that it came from somewhere. It was engaging uh, the world. Um, and that's a revelation. Uh, to many of them. But um, there's also the immediate, you know, when you're listening to uh, Kendrick Lamar's All Right in the context of the 2016 election, you know, it means something immediate and real and deep. But oftentimes what uh, you hear down the road, um, you know, and man, the students who I taught that class to for the first time are getting on towards retirement now, uh, that they come back to it. And 
part of what they understand is that the energies and the vision in those songs that are immediate are so deeply grounded in a long tradition of dealing with the blues, dealing with the suffering and the joy of life, that sometimes those songs get better uh, as you age into them. As you figure out that, okay, man, those meant one thing to me then, they mean something else to me. Now, I just drove across country listening to kind of the greatest hits off of uh, these year-end CDs I make every year to process the world. They go back to the 90s and listening to those CDs now, you know, partly I'm thinking about what they meant to me then and partly I'm thinking about how did those shape who I am now? So you get your own autobiomusicology or something out of it uh, when you listen and keep listening. And that's part of it. And I think one of the things it does, the class does, is it encourages people to keep listening over their life and to listen to the new stuff in conversation with the old. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times um, the different impulses of the music, and we've talked about listening. Um, could you talk a little bit about another central aspect to all of this? And it's the call and response yeah. from the Black church and how it was used then, but then how it is used in Black music and how maybe at a time when we were all a little less knowledgeable, white listeners might not have been hearing the same things that black kids were. Sure. Um, you know, call and response is important to the way that I understand black literature too. You know, I started writing about black literature as literary critic first and wrote about the way in which black writers were responding to black music and the way that then both the music and the writers were responding to the world. But I think more importantly, uh, what I discovered over the years is the call and response is also a pedagogy, that you put out the material and provide enough context so that students have a little sense of the history there and have a little sense of what was going on in the artist's head. But then the core of it is in a classroom, listening together. Um, and, you know, there's a limited degree you can do that if you've got 300 people in the room. Um, but uh, there's, uh, in a smaller class, like the ones you were in, um, it's easy to put something out there and then ask people, okay, what are you hearing here? Uh, and there's always a little bit of uneasiness about that because it's not about finding the right answer. But then what will happen is that the people in the class from different uh, backgrounds will start talking and comparing notes. I taught one Baldwin class with, it was Baldwin and Miles Davis. Uh, and so it was already call and response between Miles and Baldwin. I did the same thing with Billie Holiday in another class later on. But uh, that Baldwin and Miles class was 40 students and there were 20 black students and 20 non-black students. They were uh, covered some range uh, from Middle Eastern, but uh, uh and it was very fascinating in there that every now and then we'd get to a point where almost all the black students were hearing one kind of thing that the white students weren't hearing, mostly with gospel music uh, on that. Um, but it was not adversarial. It was saying, okay, I'm going to learn what you're hearing. And then the black students frequently were fascinated that white students who, you know, they look at pretty stereotypically sometimes, uh, they're the fraternity 
and sorority uh, kids, I would listen to them and say, okay, you're actually responding to this and able to listen to each other. And over the course of a given semester or a number of years with people coming back to classes, you develop a, you get people learning to listen. Um, and man, if there's one thing we could use as a culture right now, listening mm-hmm. is it. Um, you can't mail it in. You can't reduce it to a bumper sticker. You have a just wide variety of music that you listen to. I know firsthand because I have most of your old CDs. <laughs> but you are almost more than anybody I know, and you have your ways of doing it, but you're on the cutting edge of music that's happening now. So you're able to take the music that's out now, that's popular now, and able to show people how it ties into what's actually happening. Going back to the 60s and the civil rights movement, we know the main major artists, somebody like a John Coltrane or a Miles Davis, or that was, you know, the rise of Motown. Who is an artist that maybe a lot of people pass by that you think that would be a good listen to either just get to know or maybe kind of help them better understand what was happening during the civil rights movement? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, my first response on that, because I think the music is as important as the lyrics of things, is, uh, you know, I would go to, oh, I don't know, Booker T and the MGs, uh, somebody like that, uh, the Funk Brothers who played the music on the Motown uh, cuts, um, to listen closely to them. But in terms of records, um, I think that there are, I think we still uh, underrate the importance of women singers from early in the decade. Uh, the Shirelles, uh, the Crystals, Darlene Love. Uh, the, you know, the number one record in America for the Mar- March on Washington was Our Day Will Come by Ruby and the Romantics. And uh, on first line, it's, listen, it just sounds like uh, pop, romantic, teenage fluff. But then you listen to it, and I was actually on a NPR uh, broadcast about the music of the March on Washington a while back. Ruby was on there. And she said, oh, yeah, we knew we were singing for the movement. Uh, I guess that the one who is, should be in the pantheon who isn't always would be Curtis Mayfield and the impressions, though. If you don't know Curtis Mayfield, listen deeply to Curtis Mayfield uh, because he was right at the heart and soul and he stayed there over a decade. But the real thing is it was such a large chorus, so many voices coming together. And the important thing was hearing those voices talking to each other right. and responding to each other. I want to pivot back to this idea of identity um, because it is something that so many of us that love Baldwin knows he struggled with and we are ourselves struggle with it at times and i'm thinking specifically of how in the early 60s he really was most people would say kind of on the cutting edge of the movement saying maybe further out than some people want to be that's right around the time he released blues from mr charlie mm-hmm. but yet and so in that play you can see you know the preacher figure by the end 
is trying to choose between himself and this almost Malcolm X type of figure. And we see by the end of the 60s when Malcolm has his greatest popularity after death with the rise of the Black Panther Party, Baldwin almost becomes somebody that's dismissed or viewed in a dismissive way, seeing that he is somehow weakened in his stance. Would you agree with that assessment? Uh, that he's weakened in his stance or that he was dismissed? Well, both, yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course he was dismissed. Um, uh, although I think it's important to register that the loudest voices uh, in the Black Power movement didn't always or often represent a consensus in the African-American community, uh, that they were pushing. Uh, it was a jazz thing. They were pushing at the boundaries. Um, and, um, I mean, you think particularly of Eldridge Cleaver and his just idiotic attacks on Baldwin uh, in Soul on Ice. It's just stupid. Um, but uh, there were always voices. I think of Larry Neal, who I think is one of the best of the Black arts critics, who when the Black uh, arts movement attacked Ellison, they attacked uh, some of the older writers, he said, hey, slow down, guys. He said that this is just not, this is not accurate to what's going on there. Um, so yes, but, but for all that, Baldwin took a lot of heat uh, there. Um, you know, so did Martin Luther King uh, from that standpoint. Uh, do I think he deserved it? No. I think that it was people who were looking for a kind of a clarity. And there are moments when clarity is valued very, very highly and wanted to make a definitive statement. And Baldwin's just not good at definitive statements unless you take particular lines out of context. You can always do that and make it happen. Uh, I think to some extent that's Baldwin's popularity today. Uh, people are quoting him accurately enough, but as only part of the uh, picture. Um, and I think Baldwin always knew that as soon as you started demonizing somebody, you better take a good look at the mirror because you're probably projecting something outwards on them. Um, I certainly at the time was a supporter of black power. I'm still a supporter of the impulses behind uh, black power. Um, but uh, having said that, there are ways in which what black power did was simply invert the binary, the, uh, the white power, black power, saying all the things that white power claims it represents, rationality, uh, civilization, masculinity, heterosexual power, all of those things. Sometimes what Black Power did is just flip the racial term and leave the rest of it together. Uh, that's where African-American uh, women started pushing back in a gentle but unambiguous way. Um, so there's a Baldwin who's clear and not never quite simple, but certainly clear. And there's a Baldwin who's always complicated. And I think that to understand the clear Baldwin, you have to have the complication in place. Right. Now, I've spent a lot of time on the pod, you know, talking about the civil rights movement and the 60s, and we spent time on it today. And I want to do that specifically because you're working on a project now that is focusing on the entire decade of the 60s, which is 
a whole lot to take in. Could you uh, tell me a little bit about that project? Yeah, the title of the uh, project is Freedoms, uh, plural. Uh, And my basic argument is during the 60s, uh, the core energy was a serious set of discussions about what freedom means. Uh, And they were not, for the most part, the kind of bumper stickers they've become today. Uh, And they were equally intense on the right and on uh, the left. And I mean, in the introduction to the book, I start out by focusing on Baldwin's debate with uh, William F. Buckley Jr. Um, And, you know, it's that kind of debate's unimaginable uh, today. Um, But the other thing is I really hit the point that in the 60s, everything was happening at once. So you can't understand the story of Vietnam without civil rights. You can't understand the story of civil rights without uh, decolonization. You can't understand any of it uh, without gender. Uh, And you have massive changes in uh, technology. You have massive changes in scientific paradigms all going on at the same uh, time. So in terms of civil rights, one of the things is a central point is that the myths of the 60s have replaced the memory uh, in the popular world today and in the memories of a lot of people who lived through it. Um, So Martin Luther King, as the center of the civil rights movement, um, I have highest respect for Dr. King. I have the highest respect for Malcolm. But I think that uh, Danielle McGuire, another former student who, you know, uh, her book at the Dark End of the Street makes the point that from the standpoint of the African-American community, uh, the sexual, the central issue was as much sexual violence against black women as anything else. Um, And so as I am writing, I'm picking individuals to tie stories to as I move along the way. And the opening civil rights sections are tied to Diane Nash, Bob Moses, uh, Bayard Rustin, people who are absolutely crucial, but not nearly as well known as Dr. King or John Lewis today or uh, Malcolm. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much, Craig, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, Reference for listeners, I will put in the show notes a link to uh, books that Craig has written, as well as a link to some of the music he talked about today. Craig, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jesse. Great to do it. Once again, thank you so much to Craig Werner for joining me. You guys have a great week. Join me again next week when my guest will be fellow Baldwinite, professor and writer at Pavlik from the University of Georgia. You guys take care of yourselves. Talk to you next week. Peace. Mm-hmm.